0: Time has come; is we've got to go the extra step.
1: From the political science department at UW Madison, I'll compromise.
2: We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers.
0: Geez, they're they're trying to they're trying to balance the power here.
2: And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 10:50 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're welcoming back Mary Davis Michaud, a faculty associate at the La Follette School of Public Policy, to talk about a new undergraduate health policy certificate opportunity. Mary joined La Follette School in 2019 after working for more than two decades in public health in roles at the local, state, and national levels. Most recently, she worked with the Center for Patient Partnerships at the University of Wisconsin Law School, teaching courses in health policy and public health. Thank you so much for being with us today, Mary. Since you've been on 1050 Bascom before, let's get right into talking about the new health policy certificate at La Follette. We know the public policy certificate La Follette rolled out a few years ago has become super popular across a lot of majors. Can you tell us why La Follette decided to develop a certificate for undergrads focusing on health policy specifically?
0: The really practical reasons for the health policy certificate lie in I'd say three areas. One is demand. So at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, one in eight undergrads who graduate and receive their bachelor's degrees work in the health sector. Um, A third of graduates who intend to go to graduate school plan to become health professionals. And that's where I spent some time teaching, right? Medical students, and students in the master's in public health program, which were also a lot of health professional students doing their dual degrees at the School of Medicine and Public Health. So this demand for understanding the sort of bigger picture of health policy in the context within which they are working is a big piece of why La Follette is offering this. A second reason is really keeping current. Other universities have been offering undergraduate programs in health policy or health administration, which is sort of the management of healthcare systems. Um, and a third reason is the growth of the school. So, um, several years ago, just I guess three years ago, a very generous gift from Senator Herb Cole allowed La Follette to grow, what I would say exponentially, hiring um, many new faculty and also setting a course to really reach more undergraduates at the university. So now we have the faculty to offer a health policy certificate. So those three things are really, I'd say what, what drives this new offering. How specific or
1: broad is the plan curriculum for students? Is it a broad overview of health policy or can students like specialize in a particular policy area?
0: Yeah. you know being a certificate for 12 credits we really had to decide to offer something that was appealing across disciplines so as students look at the courses the first course being public affairs 201 an introduction to health policy in the united states and then look at the the second course which is really a course on analytic methods so the statistical approaches that we take to look at evidence and apply that to policy making, the policy analysis sort of steps we take. And then a third course, which is a specialization course, we say. I'm doing air quotes. You can't actually see that, but I'm doing air quotes. That one is where students can take another course that really allows them to dive more deeply into whatever their major might be, you know, we might have students looking more deeply at mental health policy. We might have students looking more at entrepreneurship and the impact of health insurance, for example, on businesses. We might have students in STEM or biomedical engineering who take courses that really allow them to um, to understand the sort of ways that finances work in healthcare. So. That specialization course sort of speaks to what you're asking, I think, Addison, which is, can they specialize? What we really want, I think, is for students to come out of this certificate program with a broad familiarity and a recognition of where in the health sector they're landing and and sort of how the financing and sort of strange economics of healthcare work. So I might offer a story that, will likely help listeners get a better sense of why these issues are so important. And um, I'll be teaching the introductory course in the spring. So I also teach health policy for the La Follette School, along with advising undergrads. It's a great great gig. So the story is one that might hit home for quite a few people listening because we all have had some I'll call it scrape with the healthcare system. Many of us, including myself, have benefited um, in extraordinary ways from the healthcare system that we have, but many of us feel like we might not. And so the story will help you get a sense of of why these issues are so important. And I guess as as listeners um, follow along, what I'd like to ask is just to kind of focus on why questions. As you're listening, why are these things happening? And you'll get a sense of what we tend to focus on in this certificate program, right? So I'm gonna introduce Joe. Joe's 48. He's a hardworking small business owner who's from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, a suburb of Milwaukee. Joe owns a heating, ventilation, and air conditioning business. So you can imagine it's quite physical, Um, He has four employees who go out and service people's air conditioning and heating. We've we've had folks like that around in apartment buildings and houses, right? His business contributes half of the $21,000 per year premium for the families of his employees. $21,000 a year is about par. It's about average for what premiums in Wisconsin cost. And a premium is the monthly amount you pay or the annual amount you pay to purchase health insurance. So Joe's reluctant to hire more people without offering healthcare benefits because he knows he can't recruit good people that way, you know, experienced folks who will stick around. They often leave if he can't provide that. At the same time, he's considered selling his business to a larger company because the premiums and cost sharing keep increasing every year and it's just unsustainable, right? As a result, Joe works longer hours. This is super stressful for him. He's married. His wife works part-time at a preschool. He has three kids, but he's out till seven, eight, nine at night sometimes, right? So chronic stress is a big part of Joe's life. And then managing his employees, who he cares for deeply. His schedule limits his ability to eat well. He's developed type 2 diabetes, which hasn't been well-controlled. And at 52, Joe suffers a stroke. It's debilitating, right? Joe has some cognitive functioning difficulties. It's impaired. He is pretty significantly disabled and it's hard. And so his wife, Laura, who works at a preschool had had early stage breast cancer a few few years ago, dependent on Joe's health insurance coverage for her and the three kids. He can't any longer work. He qualifies for Medicare because of his disability and what's called Social Security Disability Insurance. So he's covered, but Laura has to go back to work if she wants coverage. Now, this is pre Affordable Care Act. She can't find coverage in an individual plan because she has a pre existing condition. Her kids are uninsured unless they sign up for Medicaid. So Laura's not only taking care of Joe and the three kids, but she's trying to hold down a 60% job. So I'm gonna just pause, right? What are, just gonna throw it out there. What are some of the why questions that occur to you about this scenario? And I ask that because that is where we start. Why is employment status tied to insurance status in this country? And why does it persist? And what are the ramifications of that persisting in our country when no other industrialized, actually no other country in the world has employment or employability as a precursor, right, to insurance coverage?
1: Yeah, that's a powerful example. And I've actually been thinking about that a bit recently in the kind of small business versus big business debate. Like, does working for a small, small business mean that you simply either won't have insurance or will have bad insurance or will have to pay a lot of out of pocket? Is that the draw of working for a corporation, meaning that maybe your insurance will be cheaper? Maybe you'll be guaranteed to get better insurance. It's kind of an interesting give and take in what programs you're going to qualify for and what programs you are not it's a, it's a weird idea. It's a weird system that we have.
0: Yes, Addison, weird is a good way to describe it. And you know, a lot of what students end up learning about in this certificate are those weird incentives. In no other market, because healthcare is a market, let's just be clear. In no other market do you have the, the folks who are supplying the services also generating the demand. And I'm talking about healthcare providers. In markets that function what we might call efficiently or well, sort of in economic terms, you have transparent information about price, about actual cost. You have a flow of information that allows consumers to make choices among competing, right? Competing outlets or vendors, if you will. In healthcare, none of those exist. So you have this, what we call provider induced demand. And the provider is both the supplier and the the generator of demand. It's a very strange set of economic incentives. The way providers are paid. So so Joe's story is sort of on the demand side, if you will. Consumers accessing health insurance. And that's what we tend to see when it comes to ideas about reform. Um, News in the popular press, because it impacts people very directly what we try to teach certificate students or students studying health policy is what's going on on the provider side what's going on on the supply side and how are incentives on the supply side influencing cost for example because again when you have 1 in 5 federal dollars spent on publicly funded healthcare programs that is extraordinary nearly a quarter of our gdp is health related Zoiks, right? So, just a couple of statistics that you know are head scratchers for students, and this is on the the sort of consumer demand side, but you really it leads you toward the cost. Healthcare costs stop people from getting needed care. So, the Kaiser Family Foundation is one of our go-to reliable sources for information. Um, kff.org, in case you're interested. Uh, half they they pull they pull a sample of adults across the country quite regularly about healthcare spending. Half of U.S. adults say they are a family member put off or skipped some sort of healthcare or dental care or or perhaps they relied on alternative treatment that they probably selected themselves in the past year because of the cost. One in eight of those say their medical condition got worse because of it. So you have people delaying care. Now, a quarter of adults, actually a little more than a quarter, say they or a household member have had problems paying medical bills in the past year. Now, this was just pre-pandemic. So you can imagine with job loss, what the numbers are currently. Um, about half of that group, 12% of all American adults, say the bills had a major impact on their family, more than one in 10. So. What we see is this black box of why are costs so high? And in a school of public policy or school of public affairs, we do rely heavily on teaching students economics. The economics lens is a a big piece of how we help students get their heads around these, what typically are sort of black box issues. So we go inside the supply side. In other words, what's going on in, in the insurance market, in healthcare systems, how is that influenced, and these are the big questions: how is that influenced by things like Medicare policy, which is the biggest insurer in the country? What are drivers of drug costs? That's big in the news lately, right? And so we drill down into the evidence, the research that's going on to really uncover why our country has such high drug prices and and challenge sort of commonly held or commonly repeated rifts on drug pricing. That may or may not be true. It's just a lot more complicated than what you might see in USA Today. So giving students the ability to, to sort of get underneath that, ask better questions, be far more critical in their consumption of policy-related information is really one of our explicit outcomes.
2: Mary, I'm just curious, if you don't have an answer to this, that's okay, but circling back to those really powerful statistics you were listing off, do you know how those compare to other similar countries?
0: It's a great question. Comparatively, the United States consumer costs are far higher than in most other countries. A lot of recent increases come um, in, pop- in specific populations. It's another thing we help students understand is that small percentage of patients make up an extraordinarily large, disproportionately large set of the cost. And so it's people with two or more chronic conditions. Chronic conditions are those that things like arthritis, asthma, diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, these kinds of conditions that last a long time, often are medication intensive. Those are, they, they become very costly in part because of the complications that some folks who are, have been dealing with these a long time, they're hard on your body. So in other countries, what happens is major purchasers, which usually are government entities, negotiate with drug companies. And because they're such a big purchaser, they're able to bring prices down, and those companies have to sort of say, okay, it's the best we can do. In the United States, there's no such role, and that's being hotly debated right now as a you know, component of many different bills and approaches where Medicare in particular, that's run by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services inside the Health and Human Services Department, that, that Perhaps the United States should start wielding its purchasing power to negotiate prices. That's, you know, and there are trade-offs. People like to say, you know, in, in drug pricing, innovation is going to be the cost. We need that R&D money. But when we dig more deeply into what's actually going on, we have drug companies setting prices at whatever they want, or they'll reformulate a drug, right? and take, slowly take one drug off the market while introducing its replacement so that their patent protection stays in force. And if they shadow price, it's another phenomenon in drug pricing, if they shadow price that new offering just underneath what the current offering is, they have a migration of their loyal customers or the physicians and professionals who are subscribing onto the new product. So, again, knowing where to start and giving students some analytical tools, not only analytical tools, but having some exposure. We're offering a course this spring that really digs into what the data sources are out there. You know, In insurance land, you have claims data. Inside health systems, you have electronic medical record data. We have now access to data on the human genome, which is a a growing specialty within the La Follette School of social scientists who really take a hard look at social genomics, basically trying to anticipate the ethical and sort of policy relevance of using genetic data. Super interesting area. There's a great course by Lauren Schmitz that covers this for undergrads, policy and privacy in the post-genomics era. So it's those kinds of things we really dig into. This is all such interesting stuff that I'm sure,
1: I mean, I'm interested. I'm learning a lot already. I'm sure everyone would benefit from some of this knowledge and information, but who do you expect to be the target audience for this certificate? Or maybe who would you recommend this certificate
0: to? Yes. So when we talk about health policy, what we're talking about is a combination of policy that influences medical care, but also policies that influence the conditions that either set people up for poor health or better health, right? So a common phrase sort of bandied about <laughs> is the social determinants of health, right? And so a lot of what La Follette faculty end up studying has to do with those social determinants of health, economic policy. So. What are the effects of a minimum wage? Early childhood policy, financial policy, lending and housing, right? And all of those, there's a fascinating sort of emerging body. It's been there a while, but but um, emerging body linking those kinds of policies to health, right? So we do dive into that a bit, which means that our target audience for health policy, and this is intentional, is quite broad. We're casting a big net. So you have students who are sort of explicitly interested in working in the health sector, which include future health professionals, You know, students who are studying STEM, um, folks interested in public health. Um, we have a whole, as you might imagine, group that are studying health economics or social sciences and behavioral sciences who are interested in having that bigger picture context of what gets reimbursed. I'm going to be a therapist. Can I even do that? Is that viable? Or what are other roles for me? Can I understand the system in a way that allows me to have the most impact with the populations I'm interested in? We have folks who are, I'm advising, doing doing pre-advising on this certificate from computer sciences, because the health IT space is so active and so incredibly innovative. You have a lot of computer science students, industrial engineering. We've got business students who are interested in how are we going to make a go of it if we have to pay all these health insurance premiums? How can employers get together? Because that's been a big barrier. That employee, it's such a complex system. Employers have a really hard time dedicating staff who can navigate. So they hire benefits consultants. There's a whole world of benefits consultants who do this work on behalf of employers, especially small to mid-sized employers. And I think a lot of times employers feel like they're held over a barrel because they don't have the expertise to navigate these contracting arrangements. Um, So a, a really couple more groups that may find this certificate interesting and I've been delighted to hear from one is journalism students and mass communication students. You know, they're trying to cover stories in health policy and kind of don't know where to start or feel like it's the same old, same old. And what we really welcome is their critical lens and their ability to communicate and break down complex issues into stories that matter, stories that really help people understand the systems they're in. Another group is educators. You know, we've got some middle school, future middle school and high school teachers who've come and said, look, I'd love to bring this to the high school level because it impacts families. I'm seeing this. It's such a great compliment to my secondary education degree. How do I, how do I get going? So as you can see, it's, it's students who are really interested in that every day or that sort of differentiating themselves by diving deeply, more deeply into the, the, what we call the black box of health policy. Yeah,
2: hearing about the range is so interesting. I think the interdisciplinary nature of the certificate is something that really catches my attention. And I think that's the appeal probably for a lot of people. If we've learned anything on 1050 Bascom by talking to all of these people associated with the university, is that everything connects back to the Wisconsin IDEA. So would you be able to tell us how the information that's being conveyed through the health policy certificate connects back
0: to the Wisconsin IDEA? Absolutely, and La Follette is really, is one of the places where the Wisconsin IDEA is embedded. And just for folks who may not know, um, the Wisconsin IDEA was coined by way back, and I think 1905, if I'm not mistaken, by Charles Van Heist, um, who was a former UW president, who said that you know research at this big land grant university should be applied to solve problems and improve health, quality of life, the environment, and agriculture for all citizens, all citizens of the state. And if we think about the Wisconsin idea in the context of health policy, and especially as we grapple from the lessons of the last 18 months during the pandemic, I think the Wisconsin idea suggests we have some serious work to do, especially if we pay attention to that, you know, improving life for all citizens, that equity notion that he identified back in 1905, right? Um, that was the Gilded Age and it was before now one of the most significant sort of income and wealth gaps our, our nation had, has seen in its short life. Here we are again, And so the kinds of problems that we need students to understand really have to do with wading into complexity. And the Wisconsin idea means that we take research and apply it to current and ongoing problems to benefit the state. What are those problems? A massive tragic epidemic of opioid addiction. Equally tragic is um, the epidemic of chronic disease exacerbated by obesity in our state, um, alcohol use in our alcohol culture in the state, needs addressing. And those are, those sort of fall in the camp of public health policy. Increasing needs among older adults, urban, rural, all over the state, while at the same time, long term care facilities are closing. So, you know, as our certificate students come from all corners of the state, you know, I've had advising appointments with students from Chittac to Little Chute to Milwaukee, um, Superior, Beloit. But I also have students coming in from Bangkok, right? I was in an advising appointment with a student coming from Thailand. Students from New York, Vancouver, Shanghai, um, New Delhi, and they're coming to classes together. That's one of the beautiful pieces of going to school here, right? And as this generation really moves into the world of work, we really have to address more economically inclusive policies to support health and health equity. And so this certificate is just one small start to sort of bring critical thinking and understanding our past lessons. Let's not make those same mistakes again or reinforce inequities.
1: This is just a side note, but as you mentioned, students that come from abroad, students that might not be used to like the American healthcare system, is there a learning curve? Cause I
0: know there's a learning curve for us already is just young people. It's such, <laughs> I'm laughing Addison because I had um, two students from India in my, it was actually my graduate seminar last spring had just gotten, you know, one in, in particular had just come in the fall. And kept looking at me with complete and utter disbelief. You mean to tell me, she kept saying, (laughs) you mean to tell me that if older adults don't have any money left, they could be homeless? You know, and so, yes, the learning curve is significant. And, you know, some students who come have had parents who may have studied in the United States and then they've been somewhat warned, right? but i think the the assumptions made about the united states from from overseas and and the highly efficient systems we must have in place but yeah this sort of dispels some of those myths
1: as you touched upon we're still in the midst of one of the biggest health crises of our generation and there are definitely other things going on too you mentioned the opioid epidemic as someone who has spent a career working in public health policy what are some things you think we have done well in the US in terms of both policy as well as managing public health systems? And what do you think we could
0: have done better? Right. So I'll give you my own read, having worked both in sort of the medical care world and, and sort of federal and state policy in healthcare, but also having helped lead a health department, a local health department, which is part of the public health system. So clearly the United States has, has really done well supporting government-sponsored research that fuels advancements in treatment. So the NIH funding world, it's incredible. Sort of, I, I looked up some statistics um, recently and between 2000 and, 2010 and 2016, NIH funding, and this sort of blew my mind, contributed to published research associated with every single one of the 210 new drugs approved by the FDA between that time, every single one. The the research involved more than 200,000 years of grant funding and that totaled more than hundred billion dollars. Over 90% of the funding represents basic research related to the biological targets for drug action. Now, why is this important? because this is not just benefiting the United States. It benefits global research and innovation. And that is a governmental role that the United States has done extraordinarily well. Examples, right? The polio vaccine. It's really a foundation for the extremely rapid vaccine development we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. Jonas Salk was of the mind that that should be a public good So current debates around who owns vaccines is something that we cover in our health policy certificate. Why is it now that people are owning the patent to vaccines? Hmm. Hmm. Who stands to gain, who stands to lose, right? So advances in anesthesia, drug development, um, the rapid development availability of vaccines, all of that, right? It was NIH funding, let's just be clear. On the other end of things, right, moving way into the clinical side and prevention, at least in terms of healthcare, some recent advances in the way we pay for care, especially in primary care, have allowed us to integrate mental health services into primary care. And that has made a huge difference to populations who struggle just to sort of get through chronic disease management. Because if you suffer from depression, it's very, very difficult to practice good self care if you have diabetes, for example. And one more you know, community health workers are being increasingly supported through reimbursement mechanisms. And that is something that we're seeing more and more, I think, the United States do, but we're actually learning from other countries. In terms of doing better, <laughs> we spend a lot of time in this area in health policy. One clear, clear area where the United States has failed miserably is funding for governmental public health. In fact, Wisconsin, I don't know where we are currently, but a couple of years ago, we were 46 out of 50 states for state funding of public health infrastructure. Our public health infrastructure is either funded through the CDC or local general purpose revenues, which you might imagine varies wildly across the state. We need to invest in prevention, And that means in the social and economic conditions that influence health, education, employment opportunities, job training and retraining, neighborhood investment, helping capital stay in neighborhoods within blighted communities, really looking at rural poverty, which tends to be more hidden. Those are the kinds of things we need to really invest in. And we're seeing some of that under the Biden administration. We need to make our way toward universal coverage. The evidence is quite clear. You don't have to eliminate, and I wouldn't say it's wise, to eliminate competitive forces, but you can also you know, disconnect employment status from coverage. And that would be a huge first step in the right direction. On the healthcare side, one more, enabling federal negotiating power on pharmaceutical prices, I think. And, and it's easy for me to say that. There are a lot of devils in those details. But like every other country, we would see extraordinary gains for consumers. And it's fairly clear that innovation wouldn't suffer like people sort of a lot of a lot of folks on the pharma side cry wolf about that.
2: As we're talking about kind of general recommendations for the healthcare system, obviously we hope there isn't another new virus that turns the world upside down anytime soon. But should that happen again in the future, do you think that the public health community has learned enough to make changes
0: to the way they handle a pandemic situation? I think the learning will never stop because it's going to be a different situation, but we've learned a tremendous amount. The areas I think where we've learned quite painfully is, again, equity and economic inclusion really need to be a national priority. We've seen the the toll in communities that have been historically marginalized. So that's one big piece of learning that public health folks knew largely. Um, Leadership and communication among different levels of government, the dearth of leadership in the early stages of this pandemic, early, middle, um, really makes or breaks effective disaster preparedness and um, response and recovery, recovery. And in the midst of climate, Change and the kinds of mitigation and climate adaptation we really need to plan for. The kinds of lessons we've learned um, really lead back to effective leadership, collaborative leadership, honest fact, and science-based communication. And those are skills we can learn. That's the hopeful piece, right? Those are all pieces that we'd love. We're building more into our graduate programs at LaFollette. But um, we'd love to see more in our undergraduate program as well.
1: I know we've already touched on a few students that might be interested in the certificate and how that would pertain to the field they're going into. But kind of more broadly, if, say, I am maybe not exactly STEM-minded, I don't want to go completely into the medical field, but I want to kind of weave it into what I'm interested in. Can you maybe provide us with some examples of the kinds of jobs and career paths that are open to people who are interested in health policy?
0: The range is quite broad again, but you know, typically when people study health policy, especially in graduate school, they may end up working in state government, local government. Sometimes um, they might work in private sector consulting. They might work in insurance, the insurance industry. They might work for healthcare providers on the business side. Those are fairly typical trajectories for health policy when that's your concentration. But the world has so many more niches where this is relevant, right? So I think about like you said future health professionals, but I also think about biomedical engineers. You know, they may have a fabulous idea, but Medicare is not going to pay for that. You know, it's like even knowing that your product idea is going to fail because the market won't bear it. Wow that's kind of revealing. Um, Human resources professionals are swamped with the kinds of jargon and change and, oh my gosh, the things that you dig into insurance policies and find is what the folks sitting across the table from them have to deal with. So that's another group of folks, future teachers I mentioned earlier, who can bring these practical insights around the systems that people's, you know, students, families are dealing with journalists, I mentioned before, who can make complex health policy topics more accessible and relevant. There are so many, like the, the statistics I named at the beginning, there's so many people who are cutting their medications in half because of costs. The provider community has, healthcare provider community has, has really felt in many, many ways and in many communities alienated by the system, especially in the last 18 months. Just Nobody has their back, right? And so I feel like empowering future health professionals to really have a sense and a lay of the land of the economic incentives at work um, where they might organize to create change either within the clinic or or health system they're working in or at a broader community or policy level.
2: Do you have advice for students who are interested in health policy as undergrads to kind of plan for... A future internship or work
0: experience or post grad programs. Sure, sure. We didn't. I I probably didn't mention explicitly enough that the internship, which is a three credit course that goes along with either a paid or unpaid work experience during the time you're in the certificate program, that that's required. And so when thinking about that. I think it's important for students to recognize that an internship doesn't represent the place you're going to work for the rest of your life, and so entering that with a very open sense of you know where is health policy relevant here, things that that sort of pop up in my mind, there are more traditional health policy experiences where you might be working with a health system to make sense of new regulations, for example. Um, there are less obvious things like trying to help smaller employers figure out their health insurance costs or project them for the next year, you know, really using those data tools. Um, What are employees' chief concerns? Taking care of older parents is likely one. Taking care of young children who have health, you know, chronic health conditions or disability is another. Could undergraduates clarify those options? You know, for employees, absolutely. Connect employees with resources in the community, absolutely. So, you know, students might find themselves with local, state, or federal agencies working on discrete projects. It's really a matter of kind of asking a lot of questions. Where could I learn something that's according to my interests? You know, if if a biomedical engineering student's in the midst of doing a co-op for the summer, there's likely a health policy issue that's floating around in the back room. And it takes that sort of digging and asking. We
1: do have some older listeners, I'd say, some some seniors and maybe some fifth year seniors. So Mm -hmm. for for those listeners, when students start thinking about graduate programs in the public policy profession, in particular health policy, what should they be looking for? And what are your thoughts on gap years?
0: you know, it it depends. I'll take the second question first. It depends on where you came in, right? If you're a non-traditional student, you've had a lot of work experience, gap year, it might be not so relevant. (laughs) But for the majority of folks, I'm kind of a fan of taking some work time after you graduate before heading toward a professional degree program. And why? They're Expensive. You want to make sure. You want to make sure you're getting your money's worth and that you're highly directed and selective about the kinds of courses you're taking. Now, what programs might encompass health policy? So at the LaFollette School, we offer a master's in public affairs. We also have a master's in international public affairs. Um, Along with an accelerated program for academically motivated students, they start taking classes in their senior year. They're counted as first year of a two-year master's program and then finish up in five and a half years. Those are possibilities. A master's in public affairs combines public policy, and I'll talk about that in a minute, with a focus on building skills in public management. A master's in public policy, which is the course of of study I took, offers a quantitative focus and policy analysis skills, strategy, organizational management, That's sort of the the basket of skills in a master's in public policy. There are masters in healthcare administration, and that really focuses, it's sort of like a not going to go so far as to say an MBA, but it's it's like an MBA for healthcare. How do you manage the business side of health provider systems or insurance? And then finally, the, the master's in public health and the master's in public health has a quantitative piece for sure, on the distribution of health and disease, how to use data from the clinical end or the health sort of surveillance end. But it also has a big focus on programmatic influence on the upstream determinants of health. And by that, I mean, tobacco use, secondhand smoke, um, the kinds of big risk health, obesity control, um, mental health. So those are sort of the, that's the basket that I would look at. As we're kind
2: of closing in on our time here today, we want to ask if you have anything that we haven't covered yet that you think we should cover before we're done today.
0: Yeah, you know, um, thanks for that question. You might be able to tell I've spent my, the balance of my career focusing on these issues um, in healthcare, public health the factors that influence people's health. And at the end of the day, one of the reasons I went this direction was that they really reflect our values. They're so transparent in, in what we as a society value. And it's really important to get down to that level. The offerings that we have will do that because it forces folks to wade into complexity and be what I would say less and less wrong. <laughs> and, and that comfort, as, as folks enter into the work world, that comfort with not having the right answer and working with other people and, and soaking up diverse perspectives, it's gonna make a huge difference. And so we're really practicing in this space, in our certificate programs, practicing and grappling with the complexity and being better at dealing with ambiguity, because that's really how the world works, <laughs> constant change. Thank
2: you so much again for being with us today. This has been so great, and we would love to have you back on the podcast soon.
0: Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Addison. I'm really glad you're, you're here bringing student voices to, to the air.
1: For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Baskum. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers
2: and Claire Salmi,
1: and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.